New Year, everybody. Hope you had a wonderful holiday season and hope you're doing well whenever it is you're listening to this podcast. Thanks for tuning back in today. We have a great guest with us today, Matthew Reeves Cortman, who is a biblical scholar and the author of the semi-recent release, Saying No to God. And in this conversation, we talk about the Christian's calling to, in fact, say no to God. Uh, but before we get into the conversation today, I do want to take a minute just to thank all of you for your support of this project this year. Um, I know we've only been doing this since the fall, but even so, uh, the, the listenership is up and the support that we've had and you know the feedback we've heard from our listeners uh, between then and now has just been really, really wonderful and really encouraging, and I want to thank you for that. I also want to thank those of you who have come on board as supporters on Patreon. It really means a lot, and it truly is the only way that we're able to continue doing what it is that we're doing. As you know, COVID-19 kind of shut the world down. Uh, for someone like myself, who normally is out teaching and preaching in conferences and churches pretty much every weekend um, when we're not in a pandemic, you can imagine that this has been you know, financially a different kind of a year for me. So things like Patreon really, really, really are uh, just Im- immensely I mean, important to us, especially right now. And your support means more than ever before. Um, as a way of saying thank you to those of you who have become financial supporters, I do, um, I, I want to let you in on a couple things we're going to be adding as perks to being Patreon supporters coming this month. Uh, first of all, we're going to be adding a private Discord server, which is just a way for us to have private uh, text and um, audio kind of conversations back and forth with each other just about things maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable discussing elsewhere. Um, And here we can do it within the context of a community who is right where you are when it comes to deconstruction, spirituality, etc. So we're going to be adding that this month. It'll be 100% private and protected, so you don't have to worry about that. And that's going to be a perk that's available for all $5 uh, a month and up supporters. Uh, In addition to that, I'm also going to be adding a patrons-only devotional podcast in which I'm going to try to do it every week. It may end up being more than that sometimes. Some months it may be a little bit less. It's just going to depend on how things are going. But this is going to be um, a podcast that is available, again, only to Patreon supporters, in which I just kind of share with you some of my own personal thoughts that I'm having at the time, maybe some theological insights, some, um, you know, just spiritual ideas I'm, I'm tossing back and forth in my mind. And again, that's just going to be Patreon subscribers only as a way of saying thank you to you for helping us to continue doing what we do. So really, um, really encourage you to hop on to patreon.com forward slash religionless. A link to our Patreon uh, page will also appear in the description of this episode. And and please come on board. You can come on board for as little as a dollar a month, all the way up to $500 a month. We've still yet to fill one of those $500 a month slots. So you could be the first. <laughs> um, but yeah, anywhere from a dollar to you know, a dollar up, you can become a supporter, and I know most of you probably could afford a dollar to five dollars a month, and just know that that means a whole lot to someone like myself who is doing what I'm doing. So, really encourage you to do that. It really keeps us going, and it's what's kept us going so far. Now, without any further ado, I want to take us into the conversation with biblical scholar, author Matthew Reeves Cortman on the subject saying no to God. Thanks again for tuning in, and Happy New Year. Enjoy the show. All right, Matthew Cortman, welcome to the Religionless Podcast. How are you today, my friend? I am doing great now that I'm here with you, Jeff. Thanks so much for bringing me on. Oh, it's an honor to have you, man. Um, We have been wanting to do this for a while, and I'm glad we can make it happen today. So for those of you who don't know Matthew, Matt, as he will be called from here on out, um, he is an author, 
a let's see you're a you're a speaker a lecturer could you why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do sure so um i'd probably describe myself um in terms of professionality i'm a biblical scholar uh, that's what i'm i'm doing my education in it's what i've been aiming at so I just graduated from Yale Divinity School, um, doing an academic master's degree on Second Temple Judaism, and now I'm doing my PhD in New Testament, uh, looking at the parables in the Gospel of Matthew, studying under Canada Moss. So my trajectory professionally would be biblical scholar. I've got some publications and a couple journals that people can find online. Um, but then, like my soul, uh, a lot of it is not only biblical studies but theology. Uh, so I have you know, a book that recently came out and stuff, but I don't have any academic uh, degree in like specifically theological studies. I've taken a few electives in it for fun during my coursework, uh, which always made my advisors kind of raise their eyes like, what are what are you doing stepping over into that? Why are you taking a class on Martin Luther? <laughs> Why aren't you taking this other class on, on Ezra or something? Um, so, you know, this this is the the worlds I live in is is caring a lot about the living practice and thinking of the church and also like professionally being constantly involved in the historical minutia of both early church history, but you know, the Bible's history and how it's been interpreted and what they were interpreting back then and can we know that? All those fun questions. But so I'd say biblical scholar, theologian, and then sometimes sometimes instead of saying theologian, I like to say instead like a theological arsonist. You know, to hmm. kind of uh, to kind of invoke uh, the Peter Rollins pyro theology. Uh, yeah, you give know, it a little I, edge. Make it a little edge. Give it a little edge. You know, I like yeah. starting some theological yeah. fires to burn down that uh, that that uh, dross that shouldn't be there. I think you've involved yourself in some of that activity I, too, just a bit. I've maybe. been, yeah, I've been known to burn uh, <laughs> an idol or two in my days. I think, but <laughs> you, see, but I, I feel like you manage. You do it with a finesse. You know, it's, well, it's I, like. It's not a mob mentality coming for the idols and smashing them like some people. There's a finesse to it with you. I feel like you know you just maybe more like Burning Man, where it's like a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you win. You win. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. So, in in your your book is called "Saying No to God," uh, which I was able to read, which is absolutely fantastic. By the way, read and and endorse. Read and endorse. Yep. Yeah. It was an honor to do so, man. So. Yeah, that was incredible. Uh, I, mm. I, if memory serves me right, you are on the back cover. So, <laughs> well, I'm honored to be there. So, <laughs> but um, so why don't you? I, I tell you what, you know, on this podcast, what we have been doing is um, the guests that I have had on thus far all have very, not necessarily the same, but similar stories of of going from maybe a for, more fundamentalist um, approach to religion and spirituality. Um, passing through what we now colloquially, colloquially, excuse me, called deconstruction, and have now arrived at something like a new normal, uh, whatever. So that's kind of the story we've been working through with the different guests I've had on. And I'd love to hear your story today. um, And have you just kind of walk us through your own journey, and what brought you to where you are today. And then I really want to get into maybe some of the specifics of what it is you're writing about, um, what you've written about, and what you're writing about right now. Some really interesting things like confrontational theology, uh, which is a fascinating, um, just a very fascinating uh, paradigm, I guess. But I'd love to hear your story, Matt. Um, If you want to just kind of walk us through where you've been. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, It definitely has a a ring of similarity to the stories that, you know, you just 
kind of alluded to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I similarly came from a, I wouldn't say I came from a fundamentalist like background in the sense that my family was fundamentalist as much as mm-hmm. my family was heavily influenced by uh, s- segments of my denomination that were fundamentalist. Um, and okay. And the your church. denomination was, I'm sorry? Seventh-day Adventism. Okay, okay. We, um, the, the church that I pastored at for years, it was, um, there's four churches, two across the street, or two on one side of the street, two across from the other. The Assemblies of God was ours, Seventh-day Adventist right next to us, Baptist across from us, and then a um, Latter-day Saints right across from them. So oh, wow. I don't, I, I'm not, um, I don't, I never had too much interaction um, with the folks from the Seventh-day Adventist church, except for I always knew they were there on Saturdays and not on Sunday. So um, I, I'd be fascinated to hear how that even kind of, what differences there might be. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I guess two comments come to my mind. One would be, uh, wow, that's sad that uh, they never <laughs> they never reached out or... or, well, to, or... to their credit, we never really did either, so... <laughs> no, no, but nonetheless, you know, yeah, right, <laughs> just right. because one person doesn't do it doesn't mean the other one shouldn't. Right. Um, and that actually was always a criticism of mine growing up when I when I hear some um, some Adventist pastor one time when I was a kid was in a bookstore and he was uh, outside of the church and he was lamenting about something about uh, other churches and stuff. I was like, well, have you ever gone ahead and contacted them and tried to talk? And and he's like, yeah, well, we'll just wait till you get older and you see how easy it is. He got like real defensive. I was like 10 or something. Um <laughs> And, uh, and I knew then I was like, that's not the way that you should be acting or <laughs> responding at your age. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in truth, on the other hand, there's the second response I could give, which is, um, well, maybe it's a good thing you didn't have them because I don't know what community <laughs> they were. Right. So there, you yeah. could have had a fantastic, uh, open-minded Seventh-day Adventist community that embodies all the best of progressive values and thinking. Or you could have had a fundamentalist um, bleep show. Uh, so, you know, uh, it knowing who the, I was, it was probably better for both of us that we didn't. It could have been a, a, the bane of your existence it uh, could. <laughs> if they were, if they were the wrong crowd. So, I mean, that's the that's the funny thing, though. It's true for all churches, not just Adventism. That there's mm-hmm. always these warring elements of the traditionalists or the or the quote unquote liberals. These terms are so bad because like there's yeah. nothing very traditional about fundamentalism and Adventism. And and to be right. frank, the people who aren't fundamentals aren't really all that liberal usually. So mm-hmm. I sometimes hate labels, but then what can you do? There's nothing, you know, like labels are our vocabulary. You have to speak about something. So right. words and maybe that's a good thing. Like our our annoyance at how these terms are used to describe our own churches should remind us in humility of perhaps the annoyance God has at us trying to describe mm-hmm. him, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, aha, yes, there, there may be some truth to the fact that our language fails. If it fails to describe us, how much more the thing that we don't even, we can't even grasp onto. So yeah, yeah saying that, that said, um, something Adventism is, I mean, the short of it is if you were to meet an Adventist, uh, you might know that they go to church on Saturday because they keep it a Sabbath. You might know that they don't think the dead, um, that the dead continue to live after they die, that their their soul ceases to exist. And so they have to wait till the resurrection. Uh, this kind of gets called like a soul sleep. Um, basically, they close their eyes when they die. And then the next moment they wake up is is later in the future when the bodies are getting resurrected at the second coming. So... Mm-hmm. 
no no people in heaven and the Adventist imagination floating around saints all that um and then on top of that uh Adventists tend to be very health conscious at least in in doctrine and certain communities like Loma Linda California there's a some of the longest living people in America uh, in a blue zone area there. They're all Adventists, like an entirely Adventist area. And wow. then um, that's not to say that every Adventist you find is going to do that. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not vegetarian. I, I will mm-hmm. eat beef and chicken. I don't know if I'll regret that in the future. Mm-hmm. If I'll look back at myself and say, ah, I'm stupid. But for now I, I do eat those things and I enjoy them. Uh, and plenty of other Adventists do as well. So um and then, like, in terms of even the fact that Adventists keep Sabbath on Saturday, like, that's going to be very different depending on which Adventists you find. So in some mm-hmm. geographic areas, Adventists will not do anything on Sabbath other than go to church, and then they'll go home. Or they'll go right. they'll go out to, like, a park or whatever, but they won't spend money. They won't uh, get food at a restaurant, even if they were starving otherwise. And that, those are very fundamental Adventists. And then you have other communities where they're going out shopping or they're eating. <laughs> so, I mean, it can be it can be very wildly different. Um, and no, the two groups don't necessarily get along. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they view each other pretty judgmentally. So you've got that. And then I'd say there's a heavy emphasis on prophecy. Uh, traditionally in Adventism, uh, Daniel and Revelation, but unlike dispensationalism or the kind of evangelical variety, the rapture is rejected. There's no, there's no sense of um, the whole left behind scenario is just totally sure. antithetical to Adventist mm-hmm. interpretation. So, you know, it, they have um, their own ideas about things. Uh, they still hold to some very old traditional Protestant ideas about interpretation that have kind of been given up by most. And um, then I would say beyond that, I mean, those are the main points, honestly, that if you were to meet yeah. an Adventist, you'd think quickly like, oh yeah, that's that's very unique. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's, ultimately it's very similar. Blend in as an evangelical oh yeah, and, and in fact, most evangelicals today think of Adventists as evangelicals. Um, and even when we get things like, oh, what would I say? We get, um, oh, it's the organization that puts out those cool studies. Is it Pew Research maybe? Uh, but they, they go ahead and group Adventists incorrectly actually with, with evangelicals because Adventists, um, have one doctrine. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I'm missing two doctrines that I deal with in the book. Um, (laughs) that would matter quite heavily. Uh, we don't believe in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, we reject it outright as, as a, uh, invention of Satan. Um, so there you go. There's one. And then yeah. the second is that we reject inerrancy of scripture. Hmm. Now take that into account with what I just said, that most evangelicals consider Adventists evangelical. Right. <laughs> so, um, Adventists are to evangelicals, I think as, um, Jews are to Romans. Um, sure. You know, oh, there's that old crazy group of people who have weird beliefs, uh, <laughs> but mostly seem to have our views on other things. Okay, well, mm-hmm. we're, we'll ignore that they have these beliefs, but God Almighty, Rob Bell, you're one of us. You know, yeah, yeah. imagine the Romans turning on their Roman citizens as they become Christians. You're becoming Jews? Wait, <laughs> the Jews were the Jews. They didn't they didn't convert anyone, really. Uh, we didn't have to worry about this. Now we're turning? Rob, you were the chosen one. How are you, how are you shifting on your view? Um, and so I suspect like that's kind of the thing. So unfortunately, yeah. the reason that that ended up happening is uh, in the 20th century, you had a lot of Adventists who wanted to 
in the pool behind in the pool between the forces of liberalism uh like schleiermacher and so forth and then fundamentalism rising adventists had a very precarious relationship to both because adventist doctrine traditionally taught that the bible is both authoritative and human and it, that it was inspired and god-given and yet it was it was human words not god's logic so like that's a very careful balance right that you know mm-hmm. we're trying to negotiate today in progressive conversations about scripture and that was the view of Adventists. But then fundamentalism and liberalism didn't give you those options. One was going to take away the other. Um, yeah. So Adventists ended up going with the fundamentalists in a lot of ways early on because they were like, well, at least they believe the Bible matters authoritatively. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, that had a huge negative impact. Maybe it would have had a negative impact, too, if it had gone the other direction. But it had a negative impact yeah. on making a lot of Adventists start to think and adopt inerrancy as something that was traditional to their beliefs because of their exposure to evangelicals, as opposed to recognizing that they had their own view, their own tradition that was in the middle that avoided those extremes. So sometimes you'll find Adventists who very explicitly, without realizing it, are living and breathing an inerrancy doctrine. um, Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that their own faith teaches against that. And so Mm -hmm. that can be that can be difficult to navigate. So like when you meet Adventists, it can be a bit of a mixed bag depending on where they're coming from. Uh, what was their education? How much do they know about their the actual traditional Adventist beliefs versus the kind of influence that evangelicals have had? So you could find, again, an Adventist who's as liberal as an Episcopalian um, and as you know uh, amenable to those practices and beliefs and ideas, as you can find an Adventist who makes, uh, who's a King James Bible fundamentals thumping, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and I mean, King James only, you know, Bible believer. Um, You have the whole gamut, which makes the church an interesting place, not only because of that, but because, in fact, the majority of the church is located in Africa and in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though the denomination started in North America, it's it's predominantly in those areas and a smaller minority in Europe and North America. So what that means when the church comes as a worldwide council together uh, for certain meetings every so many years is that a lot of the people who are in these conversations are have grown up with a form of Adventism that was given to them by missionaries who were of the fundamentals variety. Because of course, just by, you can almost just expect that what are the kinds of personalities who tend to want to dedicate their whole life to go to some country that they've never seen or heard of? It's usually people who are so sold on the message that, you know, they've, they're fully dedicated to everything. And that tends to be fundamentalist leaning people. So, you know, my, my wife came from a community that was, when I listen to the beliefs that they have there, you're like, wow, you can see the corruption and the degradation in the traditions as they were delivered by missionaries who clearly uh, were more interested in delivering their particular and cementing their particular fundamentalist ideas in this new community, as opposed to the tradition they actually were coming from. And it has just terrible effects. So unfortunately, like, I would say that while the worship services around the world are very similar, honestly, Adventists are just a very deep variety of different kind of tastes and and plates to choose from. 
And so that can be a blessing for conversations and perspectives and, and so forth. It could also be a bane or a curse because it means that the church can often be fragmented on very important issues. Uh, for example, women's ordination, which, you know, in North America, um, many conferences uh, that the church is divided into in North America accept women's ordination and ordain women, whereas other conferences don't. And in other parts of the world, they're against it. And the world church has been struggling with that issue. And it's just very hard. Of course, this isn't unique to Adventism. It's very hard to bring together a large variety of people who come from a number of different worldviews, who are coming from different perspectives on biblical studies, different perspectives on inspiration, etc. And no matter what a church's traditions are, there's always the living tradition that it currently embodies. And you're always going to struggle with that. So I'd say Adventism is a fascinating bundle of possibilities. And I keep hoping, as well as others do, to keep trying to lead that church into a, into a place where it can be a, a voice beyond its own walls. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting, man. So how did your own story go then from what you were raised in, maybe, um, to where you are now? I mean, how differently do you practice your faith now, maybe compared to what you grew up hearing about or ensconced in and how has it evolved and how did it evolve? What, what did the process look like um, taking you from there to where you are right now? Yeah, I'd say that it, it was, a, it's a, it was an interesting journey. So like the, the short of it would be that when I was younger, my mom had gone ahead and raised me um, in a very religious devout atmosphere. I was always watching televangelists on, uh, on television and stuff growing up and, and the funny thing is about Adventist televangelists, they're, they're almost never about gospel. They're almost like, at least traditionally when I was growing up, maybe that started to change now. But like, they were very much on just like, oh, look, here's the prophecies. Here's the end of the world, you know. And, and a lot of people know this in evangelical communities from like certain rapture uh, evangelists and stuff. And that, that was all I had and exposed. And the funny thing is, is you're on fire with it all and very interested. And then as a teenager, you're growing up with being told you have the truth, you have the truth. And then you just kind of like, cool. Well, then I guess yeah. I don't need to read anymore. Well, right. I guess, I guess if the Bible's basic instructions before leaving earth, all these evangelists have definitely drilled into my brain what those basic instructions are about what mm -hmm. to happen when the Antichrist comes. So I got it down. Now I'm bored. And so I became very apathetic about the Bible. And yeah. so what was really helpful, though, in my my path was that my mom had never confused raising me. Um, she never confused doctrine for personal relationship with God. So I never associated the two as intricately connected. So it's like, yes, I have a personal relationship with God. And here are the doctrines our church believes in that kind of guide things. But I didn't mix the two up so that if the doctrines were to fall, then the relationship would fall or, or vice versa. So what ended up happening is that I went ahead and as I was graduating, I found a copy of Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, Who Changed the Story of Who Changed the Bible and Why. Yeah. And before that moment, I didn't know what biblical scholarship was. I, I thought uh, televangelist was a Bible scholar. I didn't know any better. So when I read this book, it blew me away. For those that don't know, the book's about the history of textual criticism, how scholars piece together the Bible translations, how they know what parts come from where and what manuscripts are forgeries, etc. And I didn't realize any of that. And once I realized how little I knew about something I thought I knew already more than enough, it just 
it, it just broke me in terms of what you would say would be a deconstruction. Um, but it wasn't, it didn't actually break me. It didn't like most people or a lot of people who I hear who read that book, they were just, their faith was just shaken. And with me, my faith was kind of <clears throat> renewed or reborn. I went ahead and was able to look at that material and say, wow, I thought this was only a one-way discourse with God. And suddenly I just realized that it's a puzzle in which I've got to try to figure out what the discourse even is. I got to find out, this isn't just a love letter from God sent to me to read. This is a love letter that's scrambled in a thousand pieces. And I have to try and figure out what the letter even says. Maybe it's not a love letter. Um, And rather than getting me sad about any of that or, or like frustrated, I was frustrated, like, Oh, these televangelists, why didn't they tell me these things? And so I had a moment where I could have gone down the road of kind of that painful deconstruction where you're upset and traumatized and angry. And, but then it's funny uh, because, and maybe that's because you're young when this happens or because, you know, I didn't have that baggage of connecting doctrines with a relationship. I just figured pretty quickly, like, okay, well I could be upset that, I was lied to by these different individuals, or I could be excited to know that this whole time the Holy Spirit has been working in a way that I never knew. And I should go ahead and put my energy and focus into figuring out how it has been working rather than being upset about the fact that I didn't know before how it was working. So I just went and threw myself into that exercise. And so I really skipped over the whole baggage part of deconstruction that people have because of not confusing those two so that my relationship never suffered uh, through that knowledge. And so my spirituality just switched on over to a new set of facts and it made a a pretty painless transition. Now, it doesn't mean that there wasn't plenty of struggle uh, trying to deal with new concepts and ideas that seemed to threaten everything I previously was taught was disconcerting. But, you know, I imagine no more disconcerting than having the God you thought wanted to bless you suddenly attacking you at night like Jacob. Um, Things like that, uh, they challenge you and push you. And the question is, how strong can you be to keep fighting back and fighting through it? So my experience was pretty dramatic because I'm going from someone who doesn't know anything about Bible scholarship, critical thinking, thinks the world is bad, blah, blah, blah. And I'm switching to a whole new openness to say, well, actually, probably the world knows better. Probably the other people outside have gotten more information than I do. I want to read all this stuff. I want to learn more. And then by doing that, I slowly came to realize there were other Adventists who actually did know these things and were teaching these things. And then that helped. I knew then like, okay, I need to go study with those people because they're going to show me a different version of my own faith and show me what the possibilities are. And so it was very helpful as a deconstructive journey to go to people who had also gone through that deconstructive journey and then see how they had reconstructed and how they were reconstructing and to then take your cues and inspiration from that in your own journey going forward. And I think that's that's true not only for me, that's true for, I think, everybody. I think uh, lots of people today are familiar with deconstruction as an idea, even if just popularly. And at the same time, there is this deep-seated need or gap for reconstruction. And you're, you're seeing that with, I think, a lot of authors and individuals who are like, well, yeah, well, we've spent a long time on postmodern deconstruction, and it has to go somewhere. You have to, you have to pick yeah. up the pieces and 
and do something with it. Uh, just deconstructing the clock to see how it works doesn't help you if then after you've deconstructed the clock, you're left going, ah, but I still need to know what time it is for my meeting. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> you're going to need that <laughs> clock working again, but you've deconstructed it. So now comes the, uh, the, the reconstruction. And I guess as an analogy, I'd say, you know, uh, it, it shouldn't have to be a hard thing. It can be a fun thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. like Legos. It's fun to deconstruct, uh, or maybe it can be painful if you absolutely love what the Legos build. But like, as long as you can have fun with Legos, there's always new possibilities. Even if you lost the directions, you can build something entirely new and exciting with all those pieces. And I think that theology has to be remembered to be that rich. That it's not like, oh, it was only so good if it could construct this one thing that you tore down. Oh, you tore it down. Now there's nothing left. It's like, no, all those pieces are on the ground and they're all really cool pieces. And if you put them in the right order, you might come up with something way cooler than that was before. And I think that that interest in the creative process is kind of reemerging for a lot of people. Yeah. And there may be some Duplos or some off-brand Legos that got thrown in the mix that you have to discard. But ultimately, you know, you only find that out by taking it apart as well, right? So, um, Yeah, definitely. I love that that analogy. It's like, oh, yes, look, this Lego is amazing. Wait, but the whole bottom of it in the middle is is made of cardboard. Why is it glued yeah. on? The, oh, well, that was the part we ran out of some pieces for a while. But we, we just had to keep going. <laughs> And by the time we glued it on, uh, Joe came over with his set and we just decided to, instead of taking it back out, we just start building on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it reminds me, man, my wife and I, we were driving the other day and we were talking, not gossiping, but we were talking about a, um, a couple we know who was, you know, who, who was fighting and whatever, just an off the cuff, like comment was made about it. And I, I, I just said to her, I mean, we've been married almost 20 years now. We're going on 20 years this Wow, this July will be 20 years. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, but, um, you know, so we've fought our way through a lot of things through our marriage. And, you know, you have rockier years and then you have steadier years. And anyways, but I, I just said, I was like, boy, you know, we just don't fight the way that other couples fight. You know, when I was hearing about this fight that this person had had and, you know, I've heard other fights people have had and people sleeping on the couch for two or three days or people yeah. not talking for like 48 hours. And I'm just, that's really never been the way we've done things. And I just commented and I said, we don't really fight the way that other couples fight. And she said, yeah, you know, um, we should probably fight more. And I'm actually making that the title uh, to a chapter in the book I'm writing right now that we should fight more because it, I knew what she meant and it was kind of meant tongue in cheek. But what she meant was that, you know, Sometimes we can avoid fighting because we're afraid that a fight will uh, spell the end of a relationship. But in truth, sometimes fighting is what actually makes a relationship strong. And, you know, it's that it's that if you have no confidence in the stability of the relationship, you will avoid conflict at all costs because you will fear that any kind of conflict will will, will just tear the whole thing down and it'll be, you know, irreparably, you know, you, you'll never be able to put it back together. And so like growing up, the form of um, religion I grew up in, and I won't necessarily say that this was taught by my parents because it wasn't, but it was inherent to the belief system was that you just, you really didn't question. You really didn't contend. You didn't take things apart. You took things at face value, 
God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It was kind of this blind obedience and acquiescence to whatever it was. It was assumed that God had said. And, um, and so there was no real room for wrestling. There was no real room for tearing the, the Lego castle apart and thinking of new possibilities of what you could build with what's left. And there was certainly no discarding of the off-brand or the Duplo blocks. I mean, it was just, you take this, and this is what you have, and you work with it. And it's like, no, you know what? We should fight more. <laughs> we should fight a little bit more with our belief system because that's actually the key to a healthy relationship. And if you can't, a, a relationship that you can't fight and contend within is a relationship that you're kind of confessing isn't as strong as you want others to think it is. And um, so I love how you said that your mom raised you to understand that, look, these there's, there's a relationship and then there's doctrines and we can wrestle through the doctrines, but the relationship is what matters. And so we can wrestle through issues and theology and doctrine while in a relationship with God and, and that relationship never breaking or being uh, 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 severed or compromised at all. And um, so, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of that in what you're saying. And of course, that obviously comes out in in your book, Saying No to God, and in, in the project you're working on with confrontational theology right now. So I don't know, I guess maybe if, if you could lead us into maybe a little bit of a discussion of that and, um, and, and what confrontational theology is, how it ties into your own story and background. Sure. I mean, and I can do that in a sense by commenting on, on your story. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, I actually, in some sense, probably share a lot of similarities with you with myself and my wife. So we, we also uh, sometimes joke around about we don't know any couples who go through those those issues on our own specifically but we you know mm -hmm. you, you hear about things or you see examples of things and, and we often are confused as to how those situations got to where they did but yeah. one thing i think is important it's fighting more could be good but the big the big thing that tests relationships i think is what you're fighting about yeah. so Oftentimes, when you hear about a relationship as to why it broke down, uh, and they talk about the fights they had, you kind of scratch your head and think they're stupid, mm -hmm. you know, unless they're like something very dramatic or whatever, you know, some some incident. But usually, uh, people are like, you know, when they slept on the couch or other things, it, it's it's usually very, very egotistically rooted situations in which the fight is about something stupid that the mm -hmm. two people don't want to give up on. And so pride becomes a very strong forthright, right? Neither side's willing to, to potentially give in or to understand that the other person is obstinate or, or to put the interests of the relationship ahead of the interests of the individual. Um, oftentimes, uh, it comes down to fighting for the wrong thing that mm -hmm. ends up causing the fight to be destructive. Whereas if you're fighting for... You know, there are times where you have to fight. There are going to be times where you disagree. And it doesn't mean that each side is perfectly right in what they say. There might be some cases where one person is wrong. And, but you, you know, those fights, they're only as successful as you are at doubting yourself and at listening to the other person. You know, I like to tell my, I like to tell my wife for a long time, still do that, you know, our relationship wouldn't work or have worked so far if it weren't for the fact that both of us were putting each other's interests ahead of, mm -hmm. or at least usually ahead of ourselves. If we didn't have that trajectory of what we were doing, then 
it would very easily devolve into these kinds of fights that we hear about. And so I think in some sense, right, that is a very good um, balance question of like, have more fights, but you got to have more of the right kinds of fights. You've got to yep. know when the battle is is actually healthy and when battles are not. And we know lots of battles that aren't healthy. My goodness, mm-hmm. churches are just living examples of what constant, uh, barrages of battles that make no sense and are stupid look like, uh, you know, just the, the list, I mean, do I have to give names or, you know, can, can not everyone think of one incident that they either know from their local church or in general church, uh, theology that demonstrates the stupidity like church music or, or, you know, um, what, whether or not, uh, the person's wearing a ring, uh, that, that's a, that's mm-hmm. kind of a specific thing for Adventism and maybe some other fundamentalist communities. There's, there's old beliefs about rings and whether that's jewelry and you shouldn't be anyways, lots of crazy stuff like that, that will just divide communities and cause problems. And, you know, those aren't healthy. They, they, they break us down, but then there's right. debates you really do need to have. Like, what does it mean to believe in a God of love is hell uh, reflective of God's love. And so there there are these debates that matter deeply and you should put your flag in the ground. And then there's ones where honestly you shouldn't and you need grace and you need understanding. And it's that of balance course. of not falling into a, uh, well, I'm always going to fight or I'm always mm-hmm. going to uh, just, you know, lovey dovey and not, not make any judgment. It's avoiding that extreme and finding a balance that really leads to a healthy confrontation. And so when yeah. you ask me, you know, okay, what is confrontational theology? That already is helping, hopefully, like the audience listening to get a, a taste of like, what is the balance to this? This is you know, when people at first hear the title saying no to God, they immediately, if they're from a more conservative background, they immediately start to assume that, oh, this is a free for all. You you want to, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to argue that you can say no to God all the time and for any reason and, and you'll be right. And this is, and it's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. It's not what I'm talking about. It's not what the book's about. The, there's more nuance to it. There, this, there is a right kind of battle to have, not only with your spouse, but with your God. There's a wrong kind of battle to have. And that's not an idea that I had to come up with. That's an idea that's already in the scriptures, uh, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, there's this idea that there are battles you can win with God, and there are battles you will always lose. And it always comes down to the motivations for why you're fighting, what tools you're using in that fight, and what your purposes are. And so, you know, the difference between Moses and Jonah is everything. Absolutely everything. And, you know, it's saying no to God is a concept, but the praxis behind it is very skillful. And you 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 can't just uh, willy-nilly decide, okay, well, I disagree with this, so I'm going to fight over it. It's like, uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, so sometimes the the my book's ideas, um, not for the people who read the book the whole way through, but for people who just sort of hear this idea, they get really unhinged or nervous or worried. I, funny enough, I, I wrote an article for Pathios on um, disagreeing with Jesus, or Jesus can be wrong sometimes or something like that. And um, you know, I was looking at the actual, like in the New Testament, there's several texts where uh, Jesus goes ahead and says, you know, well, this is this is an opinion. This is it's really interesting. Some of this this stuff. But I had somebody first time this has ever happened. Somebody went on LinkedIn 
went ahead and sent me a message over LinkedIn. I was like, well, okay, this is unusual. Out of all the options you could have done to, to go send a message right. to me, LinkedIn. Okay. And and the message was fascinating article, but don't you think that they that this causes some real potential problems we wouldn't want to deal with or something like that? So it's like it's like, okay, you can acknowledge that the Bible has this unique message, but you are scared of the implications because in your mind it's it becomes a free-for-all. And that's again, right. like this is the and it's a it's it's a legitimate concern uh, sometimes for people who who look at where the community is that this person's coming from. They can be like, oh no, you know, this is this is um, this they're coming from a background that's really backwards. I want to get as far away from that as possible. But you know, extremes are bad no matter what direction you go in. They can they can go in uh, left or right. It can end up in a very bad place. Um, extremism is is not the the intellectual property of only one kind of group but nonetheless you know when i wrote the the book saying no to god a radical approach to reading the bible faithfully those two terms uh also really evoke big questions in the same way that your book did your most recent one um in terms of how we're thinking about the vocabulary we're using and our our most basic perceptions so you know, putting aside the issue of how we fight for the moment, which is already more nuanced than most people get when they read the title, you know, your book's titled The Atheistic Theist, right? So that that already in our modern vocabulary already like shocks people. And and, right. and newsflash for those that don't know, I absolutely adore The Atheistic Theist. So um, if you have not read that book, you should absolutely buy that book. If you've only read uh turner's first book um that's not good enough you haven't you haven't seen his riches yet read that second book it's worth the struggle um and you know your your title why there is no god and you should follow him you know it evokes mystery because you think atheism is you know it's antithetical to theism you think that if there is no god then you can't follow him right you're playing with these paradoxes that people uh, assume about if it's black or white and the truth is it's not. In the same way, saying no to God, you assume if you're saying no to God, then you're rejecting God. And yet the subtitle, again, evokes the paradox of, well, actually, this is a radical approach, which means it's rooted in the in the tradition of the faith uh, about reading the Bible faithfully. So wait, so faith and saying no to God, how does that make sense? So unfortunately, you know, we in today's culture have some really bad conceptions about what we assume regarding this dichotomy of beliefs. You know, either you're with God or you're not with God, either you're an atheist or you're a theist. And we've forgotten that at the root and earliest parts of our tradition, we don't have these dichotomies. You know, the earliest Christians, as you pointed out really well, were called atheists and really embodied in many sense um, what New, you know, if you think about it, the the Christian atheists of the first few centuries, in many ways, are similar to the new atheists in the sense that, you know, new atheists uh, deny all the all the quote unquote gods, but they don't deny morality, mm-hmm. right? Yep. They don't deny morality. They try to come up with another way of defending <clears throat> why there's morality. In the I'm same way, Sam Harris is the moral landscape right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the book. <laughs> That was actually yep. the book that came to my mind right now. Yep. And um, and then you think about the fact the earliest Christians, right? They're going ahead and saying, ah, yeah, we reject all these other gods, 
but we're not giving up morality. Uh, we have our own, we have our own other explanation for understanding what that is. Now the, the metaphysical models, the underpinnings, et cetera, they may be different, but at root, you're rejecting everything as options that are before you. And you're choosing something unique that you have in order to try and, and make sure you don't lose that foundation. So when you think about it, the argument from the Christians is our foundation is God, not, not all these idols. Right. And for new atheists, they're like, okay, everything's idols, but the foundation's not. And so even though they're rejecting the metaphysical elements of it all, and you can have debates about what the implications would that be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a nuanced topic, but nonetheless, both sides see something very core and intrinsic and they don't want to let go of it. And they see it as not not tied up with the religions around them. So there's a lot, there's a lot more points of agreement than there are disagreement. And you miss that when you're caught up in the language games of the modern period we're in and, and how people are using language, you, you don't realize, Oh, you know, there's a lot more that binds us together than there is that's dividing us on this topic. And the same thing goes not just with atheism, like with your book, but then with the idea of saying no, numerous stories in the Bible, numerous stories that my book is very interested in that explore how God in scripture is consistently pushing his followers to push against him. You know, whether that's, you know, a classic story, for example, that, you know, your, your people listening might be familiar with would be Genesis 32, where Jacob is, sends his family off. You know, he's worried about uh, seeing, um, seeing his brother uh, Esau. And then suddenly at night, God attacks him and they're wrestling all night. And at the end of it all, um, Jacob says, you know, Jacob manages to hold off the attack. And so then uh, the divine being God goes ahead and tells Jacob, you know, please let me go. I'm, I'm kind of begging you here. The sun's rising. Uh, I got I, I got better things to do than fight with you anymore. Let me, let me out of here. And Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And people love this story. He gets the name Israel, you know, that's the blessing, but you know, people just skip over this, this, this ending uh, as if it's, it's something, you know, inconsequential. First of all, what does Israel mean? That almost gets never talked about. Israel means those who fight God, the God, like literally the God fighter. Um, and for the people of Israel, it means those who fight God. And so literally it means for Jacob, the one who fought God in the story. But then the full answer given is you will be called Jacob no more. You will be called instead Israel because you have fought God and you have won. Like what? Huh? What? What heresy is this? You won? God didn't win. Right. Since since when was that a sermon you ever heard about? Since when did you hear that? And, you know, if someone's it'd be funny if someone's listening to this, they're like, what the hell? That's in the Bible. It's like, yeah, that's in the Bible. And, and they read it and they just like they act as if like and maybe they don't. They just don't see what they don't think is possible. But it's like there it is. And that you'd think that would have some big implications. What does that mean? And it's one thing to dwell on the statement. But then think about why is God blessing him with this? Why would God be happy that Jacob won, right? That's the, that's the second. You have to first wrap your head around the fact that he won. Then you have to wrap your head around why would God be happy? And then why would God give that as a blessing 
and basically be telling Jacob, I want you and your descendants to keep doing this. Hmm. A God who wants to lose, right? Like what is, well, that actually should be a title <laughs> for a book. <laughs> I gotta write that down. Um, you know, the thing is, it's like, <laughs> what, what promotes that? And then, you know, you go ahead and you look at, at Exodus and you see again, another story where Moses in Exodus 32 is going ahead and fighting with God. And God's like, oh, well, I'm going to wipe out all the Israelites and Moses steps in and says, no, you can't do that. That would be evil. That would be wrong. That would break your promises. That would do this, 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 this. And then God's like, yep, you're right. Okay, not going to do it anymore. Hmm. And you can sit there and be like, wait, why did God change his mind? But then if you look at the story deeper, it gets more confusing because if you really look at it in context, everything Moses is saying is stuff that God already taught him. And everything God just did in that story seems to contradict everything God would previously been doing. And then at the end of the story in Exodus 34, a couple chapters later, uh, Moses gets so fed up with God. He's like, you know what? Just show me your ways. Whatever these are, just, just show it. Figure it. I'm tired of fighting over this. Show me who you are. I thought I knew, but fit, you know, prove it. And then he does. Yeah. And he gives a big speech. And, and guess what the speech uh, backs up or echoes? exactly what God had previously said and which Moses was arguing for. So now it gets really confusing even there. Wait, why is God going ahead and talking in Exodus 32 in a way antithetical to his own self? But then after Moses wins his, his fight, intellectual fight with God, God ends up telling him, guess what? You were right. That is who I am. I'm always gracious. I'm always loving. I'm always. So you're like, what the heck is going on here? What? is this phenomenon? I don't know. Like, what was your experience when, when you were reading through it? One that always perplexed me, especially perplexed me, was even just Cain, who's being punished for murder. You know, not exactly a, um, well, well not, not exactly like a uh, stand-up guy that we're called to follow. Yet even he argues with God and says, look, my punishment, this is too much for me to bear. And God actually changes his mind and says, okay, I'll put a mark on you, blah, blah, blah. No one will harm you. So, I mean, even there, we're not talking even Moses, a friend of God. We're not talking Abraham. We're not even talking Jesus wrestling in Gethsemane. We're talking the, the first recorded murderer <laughs> in scripture um, argues with God concerning the heaviness of his punishment. And God relents and changes his mind, you know? And so that was one that always stuck out to me early on to the point where I was like, who, maybe I don't, maybe I don't really know who God is because like I said, growing up, I was just called to be God's yes man. I was just there to say amen to everything God says yes to and, and never, never question. And so I had had these questions and, um, these, these ideas, even about my own relationship with God, you know, this is something I've thought of and you, you have to forgive me if you did, if you did mention this in your book, maybe it's in my head from that. I don't remember it had, it's been about a year or so since I've read it, but, um, you know, growing up in the charismatic world, which is what I grew up in spiritual warfare, wrestling with the devil and with demons <laughs> was as much a part of a person's relationship with God as was your devotional time, even in our worship music and everything else, it, there was always, there'd be a time where we're in the middle of like intimate worship 
and someone would feel the need to bind a spirit over this thing or that city or whatever. And it was like, it was woven into your relationship with God to be contending with the devil. And I remember at some point, once I kind of left behind some of the ideas about the devil that I once had, that sort of that um, that at that sparring aspect of my Christianity, that contending aspect of my Christianity was gone because that used to be all directed at the devil, right? And then I began to realize that, well, maybe I'm meant to have a sparring partner in the God with whom I'm in relationship. Maybe it's supposed to be built into the relationship and maybe we've been exporting it out and, and, and having the devil play that role of the one that we wrestle with instead of this actually being a part of the relationship we're in, if, if you know what I'm saying. And that was something that I had always wondered, like the thing that I was always saying no to was this external evil force. And there was nothing redemptive about that practice, really. You know what I'm saying? Because it's against an enemy. It's only negative energy that I'm outputting. But what if that, and I guess that's even what I meant by the comment about my wife and I in the car was her saying we need to <clears throat> fight more. She was obviously being tongue in cheek and joking mm -hmm. and, and, and wasn't absolutely was not advocating for us uh, fighting more, but just jokingly saying, you know, it, it's okay if that takes place within the context of this relationship and Mm -hmm. You know, uh, maybe the spiritual warfare stuff I grew up steeped in is something like the shadow side of a Christianity that divorces itself from the concept of saying no to God. We don't have anything to contend with or say no to. And so we pin that on this external evil force. But then there's nothing redemptive about that act or that practice. You don't learn anything from that. There's no real growth that happens as a result of it it only stirs up negativity within you and fear and dread and all of this kind of stuff. But the idea that you're putting forth is almost, you know, reclaiming the shadow side of that version of Christianity that's become divorced from this concept of wrestling with God. And because um, I think it's in us to contend, it's in it. You can't just do away with that in totality, you can't. Even if you get rid of the idea of a devil or whatever, there's still going to be that need to wrestle and contend. It's in us. We are supposed to be those who fight with God as His children, I suppose. And so um, that's what I really love about what you about what you've the idea that you're you're formulating here and that you formulated in the book is that God becomes the sparring partner, God's self, and it's not something that we have to engage with some outside force. Um, in order to experience and find like completion, you know, it's built into the relationship. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, that's it's really great because the idea of fighting with the devil is is really old. I mean, I mm -hmm. think the oldest version or statement of it is in the that I know of. You can find it in um, the Testament of Job, which is a pseudepigraphic version of Job's story that was written uh, before Jesus. And in that one, you get um, Satan to describe the conflict between Job and him. And Satan describes that conflict echoing all the terminology in Genesis 32 mm -hmm. and uh, that Jacob had with God. And it's really fascinating because I actually think that fighting against the devil is totally congruent with the idea of fighting against God. 
and I'll explain why. Uh, Martin Luther also helps with connecting this idea. But here's the problem that you have. So if I reject, if I fight against Satan, it's in theory because Satan stands opposed to God, right? Not just like Satan is the enemy of God, but Satan embodies the opposite of God, right? So in my rejection of Satan in spiritual warfare, however defined, I should theoretically in my rejection of Satan be embracing what is opposite of Satan. My rejection of evil is the embrace of good. My rejection of this uh, of this character who embodies all that is opposite is my affirmation in the opposite of of what he's rejecting. So you would think that would be the case, that, and that would I think work perfectly well because in a sense, you know, you're saying that it's not so much Satan who I reject. It's not so much. Um, you know, it's it's similar to the if let's let's throw in uh, Donald Trump, not because I'm trying to make Trump uh, the devil by any means, right. um, although there are people who would disagree with me on that. But uh, you know, they did with Ronald Reagan and a bunch of other people. So you know, everyone gets their day in the sun. Right. But um, the thing everyone is, gets to be the devil once, yeah. Everyone gets to, you know. I I'm sure somebody's going to come out there and claim it about me someday. Um, and so the thing is, is that when you imagine. Uh, Trump, right? What's the difference between I hate Donald Trump and I hate what Donald Trump is doing, right? Or or I hate uh, I hate Trumpism, right? Right? Like there's a there's a nuance between mm -hmm. I hate the man and I hate what the man embodies yeah. and what the man does and uh, and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with hating what the man embodies, right? Because what that means is you don't hate Donald Trump personally; you hate what Trump is doing and you'd hate it if it was anyone else who did it. You hate yeah. the embodiment, you hate the, the reality that is represented there. And that's great because it means that in the words of Paul Tillich, you're, you are unconditionally devoted to something that's truly unconditional or ultimate, mm -hmm. as opposed to if you're really um opposed to something very conditioned then you're you're not you're, you're unconditionally opposed to something conditioned uh you're you're opposed to something that's extremely uh limited and what does that end up meaning it means that like if you oppose satan because just because he's satan it means that you really don't oppose the things that he represents right now and this is where the the pentecostals and the evangelicals and other and other groups can get into trouble with satan is that they they reject Satan, but then when they read in the Bible something where God starts to look like he's doing the evils that Satan does, they go, oh, well, that's different. God's doing it. God can do anything because God's the author of good and evil. So God gets to step outside of So see, this is the problem. When God, when, when you say, I'm against Satan because Satan did this. Okay, but God just did that. Oh, well, that's different. Satan can't do it, and we should be against him because he did it. But God can do it. Now, this is when it all breaks down. This is when the whole idea of spiritual warfare is bankrupt because you're not, you're really creating a cult of spiritual warfare against a personality, Satan, mm -hmm. not against what Satan represents. So you're not actually learning any moral values from the experience of your spiritual warfare. You're not changing as a person. Rather, you're just developing a sort of 
uh, animosity and, and spiritual hatred for some character who you see as personally against you. So there's no growth from it. It's emptiness. It's bankrupt. Whereas what Martin Luther pointed out is that sometimes God in scripture seems to grab a mask that makes him look like the devil and puts it over his face. And Luther said that when God puts the devil's mask on and looks at his faithful soldier and starts to talk like the devil, he's testing you to see whether or not you really are against the embodiment of the devil or whether you're willing to throw that all away and embrace the devil if God suddenly seems to suggest it's okay. Yeah. So God said, don't kill in the Ten Commandments. All right. But now God says, go murder your mom. Well, what do you listen to? Well, God's speaking to you. Oh, well, uh, and see, this is the difficulty. And people can say that's absolutely not true, blah, blah, blah. But those same people, if they're looking at the Canaanite genocide in Joshua, will go ahead and say, well, God has every right to kill all those Canaanites and and can do all these things because he brought them into the... So you can't can't go around and, and try to argue and say that God would never do these things. Okay, great. You believe God would never ask you to kill your mother? Or do, okay, great. So then we can agree that God didn't do these things in the Hebrew Bible. No, I'm not going that direct. Oh, well, then I'm sorry. Then, you, then you're just a contradictory personality. You, that you're at odds with yourself. You can't have one. You can't eat your cake and you know, still be holding it. It's, yeah. it's gone. All right? You deal with the consequences of your decisions. You can't have both. So I think spiritual warfare can definitely be a very positive experience. If what you're at war with are the principles that Satan stands for, yeah. then you're you're successful. In the same way, nationalism can be positive if you're nationalistic only insofar in your love for the principles mm-hmm. of your country, not the actual conditioned country. As long as you are dedicated to the thing that makes what your country is great and not the country, not some personality, not some misguided, right? Then you can have a very healthy uh, view and it won't be idolatry, according to Paul Tillich. But when you go ahead and, and confuse those categories, it just ends up bankrupt. And so I think what um, Martin Luther adds to this equation is to tell some, perhaps some of those Pentecostals you studied with is, yes, you, you should fight the devil and you should fight uh, God whenever he looks like the devil. Because if God wants you to fight the devil, then God wants you to make sure that he also wouldn't look like the devil. He wants to make sure you know the difference between who the devil is and who God is. In the same sense, you know, like uh, you don't want what what God would like to know that, oh, uh, you would worship Marduk, Isis or anyone else if they spoke to you. Your, your value, your devotion to me is as uh, shallow as my voice speaking to you. That's it. That's that's all it took. It's just I talked to you. Anyway, in fact, Satan could have done one of his deceptions and you would have fallen for it and, and been like, here's God. No, no. I, I, God is very clear throughout the Bible. His character is what defines his, uh, his divinity, Who, what he stands for. The you know, And this is a big part of the gospel in regards to Jesus's revelation of who God is. It's all about God's character, his heart. God's love, his God's embodiment. That's what's at stake. And so, you know, one of the reasons that Adventists have always been against uh, an eternal hell, why that doctrine has always been uh, flatly rejected, is because our, our earliest thinkers 
pretty much pointed out, uh, and specifically the the fourth most right on the issue is Ellen White, was that the doctrine of hell turns God into the devil. And, and it was so apparent to early Adventists that it just became, you know, within the sort of supernatural worldview, it became common to just argue, well, this is the greatest trick of the devil. The devil has gone ahead and convinced Christians to believe that an image of him is, and his desires for humanity is actually the image of God and his desires for humanity. And so in that respect, how you know one of the early arguments of adventists is how you view hell is how you view god mm-hmm. and if you believe that god is is like the devil then you're really not christian you don't have christ in your heart you really don't know who the father is and then it kind of becomes like you're an embodiment of of sort of the um the text in John, I think it's John eight, where Jesus is arguing with some Jewish leaders and they're like, and he's like, well, you think you're children of Abraham, but you do everything opposite of him. You know, you're, you, you seek, you know, Abraham uh, didn't try, didn't seek death. Abraham sought at every Avenue to preserve life. And here you are, you're seeking to kill me. You know, you demonstrate who you're the father of You're the, your father's the devil because of how you embody who you embody as, as children, you know, and in a sense, what, what that means, it's not, it's not like Jesus is saying you were born of the devil. It's more like adoption. It's more like you've, you've left your, whatever your biological father is, and you've adopted a new father. You've, you've given allegiance to a new family by virtue of how you've embodied these things. And I think uh, dangerously that early Adventist rhetoric really rings very true today in the kinds of issues we see, whether that's with the kind of Trump nationalism that at times uh, exceeds imagination, or we're looking at uh, hypocritical evangelicals all over the place, or even potentially we could also add to the mix, uh, super overzealous uh, 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 leftist activists um, within our, our some of our own friends' communities, et cetera. What you end up seeing here is essentially a uh, a misplaced zeal to forget what the principles are that undergird your allegiance or undergird your objections and just just tackle or latch onto an idol or a representation and when you do that you miss the whole point you know you p- potentially become a christian who is worshiping an idol that looks like the devil or you know you can you can think that you're worshiping Christ and in reality you're you're antithetical to all the 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 teachings that or at least a large majority of the teachings that Jesus uh, gave those are real problematic issues and it you know as long as you don't care about what the undergirding issues are then you can sit there and say oh this is fine um I claim Christ's name okay great do you understand what that means do you understand what that represents oh I'm against Satan great but do you understand who Satan is and why you're against him? This isn't tribal warfare. We're not just against Satan because the dude went against God and you don't do that and bad on you. No, that's, that's, that wasn't really the myth. That's not really the story yeah. that the it's what Satan was doing. It's what Satan represents. It's it's, and in the Hebrew Bible, especially it's a clash over justice. It's a clash over um, how to, understand the need of of law versus grace that often pits in the hebrew bible yahweh and satan against each other even in the their own court 
those are the things that have to undergird what you're looking at. So when we're talking about the need to say no to God, we're talking about the need to know who God is, to know what God's character is, and not be ashamed to stand by that. And so that that's a good spiritual warfare, a spiritual warfare that is opposed to Satan, whether it's Satan or whether it's God holding up Satan's mask over his face. Yeah, I love it, man. I, it, it reminds me of, I think it's in John 10, where Jesus says to some Jewish leaders, I've shown you many good works for which of these are you trying to stone me? And the answer comes back, well, it's not for any of the good works you've done. It's because you being a man claim to be equal with God. In other words, it's, it's your doctrine. It's your theology. We're not yeah. into, um, but the good works. So we'd have nothing to say about those. We can agree that those, well, maybe match up with our understanding of God's character, but you crossed this line. You ought not cross. So therefore you're not of God. It, it, it reminds me of that in a sense where that was an opportunity right there to have engaged with their image of God in a, in, in wrestling. And you know what I'm saying? Like, well, here we yeah. are presented with the works of God. This and, is and who we know God to be, but we have this theological stumbling block. We can't get over what you said, though. We can't get over the mouth sounds you made. And so, well, the works, well, we don't condemn you for the works, but the words you said, now, those we can fight over. <laughs> and this is so interesting, too, because people um, love, like, right, there's so many Christians who you know, a number of which are probably listening to this, who go ahead and say, yeah, yeah. And they, they, they love those texts in John and stuff. And they love to quote them and think about them and say, that's the truth. Mm -hmm. And they fail to realize, aha, uh -huh, but do you realize that the Jewish leaders are being perfectly biblical? Mm -hmm. yep. Like, where are they drawing this from? <laughs> like, was this just some crazy idea they had? No, it's from Deuteronomy. You can mm -hmm. hear the echo of Deuteronomy and its warnings against false prophets. What yeah. did Deuteronomy warn? It doesn't matter what good works they do. If they happen to say something, and specifically, if they happen to suggest that there is more than one God, or they happen to suggest that, you know, that that there's, you know, they start to, to suggest any divergence from what's traditional about affirming one God, then in that case, they are an anathema. You are to kill them immediately. That's Deuteronomy. These yeah. Jewish leaders are not coming at Jesus, going in and being like, well, we got our own ideas. They don't need to quote Deuteronomy because it's too well known. It's like, this is one of the foundational uh, texts for what to do with false prophets. And then as I recall that story, I think it's this one where Jesus comes back at them uh, and, and says, well, don't you know that God called you guys gods in Psalm 82. Right. Yep. And, and so again, like this is a, a big game. And I, 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 you know, obviously I spent a, a number of pages in my book looking at how Jesus undermines the scriptural traditions of his day, what going back and forth with people about things, it, almost acting in a sense, like a, like a, um, a, you know, Jack Derrida as a, as a deconstructionist, Jesus is going ahead and, and sitting there with, or standing there with these people and being like, well, yeah, the text says that there, but the text mm -hmm. says this over here. And that undermines your whole point. That was, oh, well, let's go stone the woman. Okay, great. But um, I know the text says that you're supposed to stone the woman again, Deuteronomy. Uh, but, you know, in truth, the only one who should philosophically throw that stone is one who is not themselves guilty, right? Yeah. Okay, well, then whoever's the first one who doesn't have sin, they can throw it.
And it's like, what is the argument? He's like, the evangelicals totally fail to recognize how absolutely radical this approach is. Jesus is just looking at scripture and going, well, yeah, the words in the scripture say this, but philosophically, I mean, the principles in scripture don't really allow us to implement this now, do they? And in fact, you know, these arguments, we don't use them exactly like that anymore, but people still make those points today. They'll be like, well, it's not, God says somewhere, vengeance is mine. So we don't do anything now to enforce these laws that say we should do things. We wait until the judgment day for God to do things. Right. But it's like, but that's not what the text says. I open up Deuteronomy. It's like, right. go kill these people. <laughs> go do this. Uh, make them your slaves for all eternity and, you know, perpetually. And, and, and yet Christians are kind of unconsciously, they recognize this point, this kind of methodology Jesus does. And that's kind of my problem with this. They're doing it unconsciously. They're, yeah. they're not, aware of what they're doing and so it does them no good like we need to be aware that we're doing these things we we need to pay attention that when we read jesus and mark's gospel i think it's chapter four chapter three where you know his disciples are are uh plucking grain on the sabbath again um the the jewish leader some jewish uh, pharisees or sadducees come over and they're like hey you know why are your your disciples doing what's unlawful uh plucking grain on the sabbath well, what are they referring to? I mean, yes, there was a lot of developments in regards to the Sabbath and, and working on it throughout the Second Temple period from Nehemiah onward, but and Jeremiah onward. But ignoring that, right? The the closest thing you can think of is is the I think it's the Book of Numbers where you got the story of you know the manna would fall down during the forty years and forty days in the wilderness. Forty years in the wilderness, you've got manna falling from heaven, heavenly bread, and you know God tells the Israelites. Uh, you can pick up and store the man on Friday, but you can't pick it up on Sabbath because if you do, I'll 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 effing kill you. Mm-hmm. And and he does. Someone did it, and 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 they die. And God's like, gotcha. All right. Well, yeah, that's a pretty good. I mean, as a story, what's its purpose, right? You can't sit there and be like. You can't sit there and read that story and be like, well, that only applied to the manna people in the 40 years. It's like, well, when did they write the story down? Oh, way after that. Oh, okay, okay. So they wrote a story down that had absolutely no purpose other than a little anecdote about God said not to pick up uh, on the Sabbath. What? Yeah, no, that's not how it works. Obviously, the story's purpose is don't pick up on the Sabbath. <laughs> don't pick up yeah. sticks. Don't pick up anything because in the day you do, God will judge you. And now you have Jesus' disciples plucking grain because they're hungry. And, you know, righteously, you've got Pharisees and so forth coming over saying, hey, we read the law. This this violates it. And Jesus goes ahead and says, in, in perfectly orthodox fashion, well, don't you know that when David was hungry with his troops, he went over to the tent of meeting and marched himself into the courtyard where only the priests are allowed and ate the bread within the temple? Uh, and God didn't strike him dead. Yeah. Oh, great. So now, now we're arguing somebody else in the Bible went ahead and did something bad and didn't die for it. So that means it's okay, right? This is a crazy argument. Think about the logic of this. If you were a pastor and someone comes over to you and they're like, well, this scoundrel did this bad thing in the story and he didn't get struck down. So that's my argument for why I can do this thing. Yeah. And that's that's the equivalent of what Jesus does. He doesn't add yeah. anything else extra. But then beyond that, he goes to make a, a, an actual d- real defense principally. And he says, well, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Thus, the, the implication is that uh, the Sabbath has to serve the purposes of man. Man shouldn't suffer because of the Sabbath. This is totally at odds with the story in Numbers. It's totally at odds with the traditions of the Sabbath that were developing through Jeremiah and Nehemiah onward. And again, Jesus is contradicting these clear scriptural directives. And the people, I can only imagine, are just in shock. You know, what do we do about this? What what does this mean? Uh, and, you know, you could think, well, that's why Jesus came. Right, this would be the the traditional idea. Jesus came in order to tell us this. Jesus is the revelation of these things we didn't know. And I mean, this kind of unfortunately, this almost gets very, um, very Marcion or otherwise. It starts to sound a little too too much like, well, the Jews didn't know anything, and now Jesus comes and everyone, uh huh, okay. But then that flies in the face. That kind of approach flies in the face of what Jesus does on another occasion uh, in Mark, where he's talking about divorce. And he goes ahead and tells the the people that uh, you are not supposed to divorce uh, and that because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you this law. But actually, it was not from the beginning. It was not God's purpose. Now, what's fascinating about that whole scenario is the text of Deuteronomy that has the divorce law does not state that this is something that Moses gave. It says very clearly that God gave it. It's not conditioned by any circumstances. It's just given in a list of things that God supposedly verbatim was just saying one after the other. And now suddenly we're hearing from Jesus that, oh, actually that was Moses. Actually, God didn't want it. And actually it was only given because of a specific historical circumstance, contextual uh, reasons that provided for a limited use. Okay, good to know. How come that wasn't in the text? But this is the part that throws everything. Yeah. He condemns them for not realizing it. <laughs> That's the part that flies in the face of a kind of, well, Jesus came in order to tell us these things. Well, really? Because Jesus is actually condemning them for why they have continued the practice of divorce why they didn't know or realize that Moses was the one who gave it, that it was conditional, that it was contextual. Jesus apparently agrees that they should have been able to figure those things out, even without him telling them that. Yeah. That's getting to the core of what a confrontational theology is. It's, it's fighting for God's character, caring about what God's uh, will is, and not feeling restrained by scripture to say, oh, well, it's written there, so that that settles it. Well, that was some good stuff, man. I really appreciate your insights and the years that you've obviously put into studying this out. Just before we, we, we go today, are there any final thoughts you want to offer anyone? Obviously, the people listening to this, a lot of them are people who have either undergone or are undergoing what we call deconstruction. Um, so that's kind of the boat a lot of the listeners are in. Are, are there any final thoughts you kind of want to offer anyone who might be in that boat and how it uh, pertains to the work that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I think that people should understand if they don't already, and I think a lot of people do, that uh, those Lego pieces that are deconstructed and sitting there, they really have a lot of possibilities. And not only do they have a lot of possibilities, but it was always God's intention in, uh, in Scripture that the pieces were to be valued 
not the uh, necessarily the, the the specific construction that you have that you put together with those pieces once upon a time. Um, you know, that's the heart of idolatry. Really, is misrepresenting God. Not so much that you tried to represent God, but that you mistook your construction to be um, undeconstructible, to assume that it was uh, and is equivalent to who God is. And I think what we have to understand is to say no to all constructions of God as being something more than they are, while appreciating the benefit that they add to our lives as what what it is they really are, which is constructions that can be reconstructed and changed. So if we can value those pieces of Legos and see the possibilities that they bring and the way that the spirit can move and utilize those, then we're going to be a lot better uh, and have all kinds of new possibilities going forward than we are if we're stuck in this idolatrous mode of thinking that you know, the Lego spaceship is the only thing that the Legos could ever build and the only thing that it could ever do and the best thing that it could ever do. Um, and so hopefully people going forward, um, you know, with the conversation at large, and, and hopefully if they'll take time to look at my book as well, that they'll gain new perspectives on the riches that the Bible has, riches that were not readily used or utilized or made available by the communities perhaps that they had previously already been part of, which is a shame, but it'd be, I think, an even greater shame that, um, that people might, because of the experiences they had, miss out on the real gems that are there in the Bible uh, just because of the mud that they had to kind of shift through in their earlier years. That's good stuff, man. Really good stuff. So um, where can people get your books? Obviously, Amazon. Definitely. Uh, you have a website? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, you can get my book anywhere where, where books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, anywhere. Um, and and in any country, any, any place, if there are people who are outside the United States. Um, my website is uh, matthewjcortman.com. Um, the book also has a website itself. You can go to sanenotogod.com. So really simple, just the title. And if people are interested, you know, right now I'm, I'm currently doing work on, um, on some new books, some new things. And uh, I've la recently launched a, a Patreon webpage because the life of a PhD student and author is not a, it's not a, a lucrative one, nor a, <laughs> nor a financially stable one. And so, this is your full time. You do this full time, correct? Yeah, I, I have. Yeah. There is nothing else I'm doing but my studies okay. and 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 writing and stuff. And unfortunately, my my studies and the circumstances of married life and other things certainly make it difficult to keep doing this without um, without any support financially. So, and and bookmaking, as as you probably well know, Jeff is it's not lucrative. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Uh, Rob Bell is the exception. Yeah, but. Um, <laughs> So I have a Patreon that I recently launched. Uh, it can be found at patreon.com um, slash Matthew Cortman. And I'm uploading, uh, well, I'm doing a bunch of stuff. I'm uploading videos, doing special contents, a book club. Uh, but I'm also specifically uploading um, the draft chapters of my current new book projects each month, mm -hmm. putting up new stuff there. And um, there's all kinds of perks I'm doing, like autographed copy of uh, autographed copies of my current book and uh, free audiobooks, as well as like um, as well as guaranteed autographed copies of the next books that are coming out. So 
if anyone has listened to this stuff and they're like, wow, I really love this, or you've read my book already, or any number of those things, please come support me on Patreon, even if it's as low as $2. Um, but, you know, there are other options there with different perks. But, you know, definitely, <laughs> and not just me, support anybody who you value who's doing work because uh, it, it's not free. It, people sacrifice a lot of their time and energy and get very little um, you know, very little said back to them about it. I think the book has sold right now over 1,500 copies. I've probably heard from, I don't know, 4 or 3% of that uh, ever, right? Like an author rarely hears back from, from the majority of people who are doing it or, or even knows how everyone is, is, is regarding it. So any support that can be offered for both myself, but really for any author that you appreciate, even if you didn't end up supporting me after this, but you, you found your favorite author like Jeff or somebody else, and you're like, Hey, I want that longer version of the podcast with the extra material. I, I want to, I want to, you know, or maybe, you know, that's a nice perk, but I really just want to support the, the person's work that they're doing. Yeah. Every, every bit of support really does matter, honestly. Yeah. No, I can attest to that. I, I'm at the moment. I'm not doing this full time. I do, I do, uh, I do have a day job at the moment, just because it's a necessity. But I can, I can absolutely say, 100% in agreement with you that um, even the one dollar people sometimes discount becoming a patron for like a dollar or two dollars, thinking it's not doing anything. But, but trust me, just knowing people are behind the work that you're doing. Yeah. It means everything. You can, you can be an, you can spend two to three years writing a book as an author and never in your entire life, make back a quarter of a year's salary off of that book. I mean, yeah, really those, those who do work in the specific areas we're doing work in it's, you have to do it because you love it first. And then the income is almost secondary. And, um, you know, when people take on projects like this, it, it speaks a lot to me concerning their character, because I know you're not going into this with the intent or with the intent of, you know, Scrooge McDucking your way through a money vault full of gold coins. You know, you understand. Well, if you are, that, you clearly are new to this game. <laughs> you're very, you're very, very new. Yeah, you're very new, kid. Um, <laughs> but, but so, so all that to say, please support Matthew. We we definitely want you to be able to continue doing the the education as well as putting out the content that you're putting out at the same time. So we need voices like yours in this day, and um, so we want we want to make sure you're able to keep doing it. So please yeah. check out check out his Patreon, um, whatever you know. Get that highest tier. Go grab it. There's only a few of those spots left, man. So. Go and grab him and, um, you know, support his work. And I know he'll appreciate it. So, Matt, thank you so much for being on today. It was an awesome conversation, some fascinating stuff. And um, I hope everybody goes out and buys your book and supports you on Patreon so that you could be doing what you're doing for many years to come. Because like I said, we need voices like yours bringing us content like what you're bringing us. So thank I appreciate you so much, it. Man. And I really do hope that um, if, if even if they don't end up supporting me on Patreon or doing any <laughs> of that stuff, I do hope that... Um, these kinds of texts, these kinds of, of discussions, these kinds of approaches to discussing these issues is going to become more mainstream. I, I mean, that would be the greatest honor, credit or no credit, is just to see people yeah. making these same kinds of arguments without me being the one doing it. And to see yeah. people citing these Bible texts and giving them that, that, um, that spotlight that, that they certainly deserve more than some of the other texts that get thrown out uh, mm. in different... Um, 
whack-a-mole, you know, theology hit jobs that happen all the yeah. time. Uh, you know, that's seeing the transformation of the Christian discussion discourse. That's the biggest goal that I have above anything else that would yeah. truly be the greatest, um, how would you say, payback for, for any of the work that I'm doing. And so just see that people genuinely are embracing a new way of kind of it, it, talking about scripture and its role. So I uh, thank you again so much for having me on. It was yeah. a real blessing. Oh man. And amen to everything you just said, but still go support him on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thanks again, Matt, for being on and thanks everybody for listening.